Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about how the inflation data is moving mortgage rates and what we could see for the rest of the year. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is wonderful to be here, Sarah. And I just want to say that to the lovely lady, Julie, who uh, introduced me at the uh, CUNA National Credit Union Conference yesterday, she she always wanted to know, what do you say to me after the podcast? Because she believes you're internally cringing sometimes the things I say on here. <laughs> and I go, well, Sarah thinks she's the boss of me. So that's why I call her boss lady. She takes my charts away. She tells me how to say it and everything. But do you cringe after our podcasts? No, I don't. There are there you do say some things where I'm like, "Ooh, okay, that's that's quite out there." But no, I do not cringe. Okay, mostly. okay, and, and again, thank everyone who's listening right now. You know, one of the things we just found out today is that today, this morning, uh, we were in the top 100 global news podcasts. Couldn't recognize any of the names up there. We're always usually in the top 10 in business. A news podcast in America. But uh, for all the fans outside of the US, thank you so much. We try to make it as entertaining as possible, but try to be as educational as possible as well. It, you know what? It And it uh, warms our heart to think that uh, we have that many listeners. We love, we love meeting them and hearing from them too. So, okay, well, let's dive into our topic today, which is very much top of mind, and that is mortgage rates. Yes. So the question now is, how much lower can mortgage rates go? So I think what we're referring to right now is, you know, on Tuesday, the CPI inflation data was uh, less than expected. Um, the 10-year yield fell again. Mortgage rates, uh, you know, went to 7.40%. But let's let's talk about this in, in a more broader scale. The growth rate of inflation has been falling for some time, right? Uh, mortgage rates still today are higher than uh, uh, what we were last year, right? Last year, the growth rate of inflation was actually higher. But what occurred uh, last October is that the market actually was thinking not only was the Fed going to pivot, but the US was going into the recession, right? So let's go back to October 27, 2022. Talk about, okay, the, you know, the, the peak, the short-term peak of uh, the 10-year yield. And then, you know, London was in trouble, Bank of Japan, IMF, all that stuff. So the 10-year yield started to make a dive down, but it got to a level where I did not believe it could go lower. You know, I just the labor market was not breaking. The Gandalf line, for those who don't know, I said, this is it. We're going to hold the line here. We broke it for one day. Why? It was the peak of the uh, uh, financial banking crisis. Uh, and now the 10-year yield and mortgage rates went from 6% all the way to 8%. But the last... Uh, seven to eight weeks, what occurred? The Federal Reserve made a mistake, right? We talked about, you know, Jay Powell doesn't want to land a plane, so we need to take the plane away from him. We'll land the plane. I'll take it. I'll take control. Let me do it. We want to land the plane. We don't want to be stuck in the 1970s. We don't want to do what they're doing. And the problem they did two Fed meetings ago is that with a 10-year yield already in restrictive territory, real yields, meaning rates are higher than the growth rate inflation. They went hawkish and bond traders rolled right over them, just crushed them, right? 
Then you got some Fed presidents thinking, oh, hey, what's going on here? I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't know why we went hawkish and then the 10-year yield went up. So now, you know, we went from 5% on the 10-year yield and, you know, we 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 headed lower. I think we got as low as like 7 point or 4.40%. Bond yields are up today. This is a Wednesday morning. Retail sales came in as a beat. Uh, the previous months are revised. So where are we right now? So what, what I want people to focus on too is the same thing we've been focused on all the time. Economic data, right? Labor data right now. Because what we have seen recently is that people say, oh, the, 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 the America has been debt downgraded. The deficit's so high. 10-year yields could, oh, the Bank of Japan, everything rolled 60 basis points on the 10-year yield rally. 10-year yield went down with all that in the backdrop. So if the labor market gets weaker, bond traders will, will sniff this out and already we're seeing almost like 1% rate cuts priced again for next year. Now, the different conversation now is, well, if the growth rate of inflation is falling, the Fed would actually have to start to you know cut rates by itself, not even need the labor market because they don't want to be too restrictive. So we're in this very unique spot this year where we weren't last year. Uh, so we track all economic data every single day. We see how the bond market reacts. Uh, but again, economic data over inflation, but now inflation becomes in a sense, a benefit if it keeps on going lower because the fed does not want to be in too restrictive policy, because if you create a job loss recession, it's going to force them to cut at this point. And I think that's, that's where we are now where it was a different case last year. So interesting. So I just got uh, done having a conversation with Mike Simonson, who is, you know, the president of Altos Research, which you use all the time. It's like you're a kid in a candy store. And one of the things we were talking about, which again, he does agree with your mortgage rate lockdown theory that is, that, that is not, it is not true. But one of the things he said was it's the volatility, right? It's if, if they could just find, if rates could just find a level and stay there for some duration, you would see a lot of things get better because it's not just, are they up, are they down? Can they just have some duration? You know, one of the things we talked about last year and early this year is that the the mortgage market in America resembles like a third world country. Like when the US dollar gets so strong, bond yields around the world gets in trouble, you know, uh, and there's so much volatility in mortgage rates. And this is not like going on Instagram and buying a dress you know, and uh, this is the biggest choice of your life. And again, one of the things I've tried to stress for some time, sellers are buyers. So you have to be able to qualify for a house to list your house to buy another one. And if you don't know where mortgage rates are going, because it's so volatile, you cannot have a functioning market, right? And that's the sloppiness of what happened last year, right? We went from three to 6%, six to five, five to seven and a half, you know, and we're kind of all over the place and you can't make a decision or the, the country can't function normally because they don't know where rates are going. It's so volatile. And I think that's that's the downside of having so much volatility in a very short amount of time because you, you got only one shot at this, right? And if you're, let me give you a hypothetical. A person says, okay, I can qualify for a house at, you know, 7%. Okay, so I'm going to list my home and we're in the process and all of a sudden rates go to 8%. And now you don't qualify for the loan. And then what are you going to do with your house? Your house has just got offer, it's accepted. Now what do you do with your family? What do you do? I mean, this is not normal. And this is again the Fed's blind spot and 
by the fact they can't read purchase application data anyway. Um, and in this site, they don't understand uh, well, why, why are the consumers so grumpy, right? They're cutting down the cost of living, but also, you know, it's this, how do you function normally in the buying selling process where you're so volatile and right? So duration is key. Calmness is key. Slowly going down would be beneficial in time. Um, and again, uh, I, I know for uh, on Twitter, I did a, another little dissertation about what happened last year. Last year, mortgage rates went down. They slowly kept on going lower. We had three months of positive forward-looking data because people were, okay, rates are going lower. I feel comfortable and nothing happened. And then February, first week of February, mortgage rates shot up 1% again. So we, ju- we just can't get a functioning market until we get some stabilization. But if lower rates do happen with duration... We've already seen what happened early this year and late last year. You can get some demand to pick up because, again, we're a country of 335 million people. We have over 157 million. We don't need much to get sales to grow from here. We're at such low levels. Uh, but the volatility has been a problem. And then choice making, right? People have to make choices. And you can't just list your home anymore and, oh, I can buy. You have to be, you know your qualifications, you know what it has to be, and you go with it. So one of the things that you've talked about a lot over the last year is like the fact that the Fed can, you know, they they take their actions, they're doing their, but the bond market can get ahead of the Fed, they can push the Fed, they can disregard the Fed, they can kind of do what they want. I know you got a question yesterday, you were uh, speaking at a that CUNA event, and you were talking, uh, you had a question about, hey, what about the Moody's downgrade of the US economy? And what did that do? And should we be worried about that? So, you know, walk us through that. What happened from that? And And what do you think the bond market is doing? We got a downgrade, you know, and it was very late on Friday. There was not that much time left. And the bond market, okay, it came Monday. Bond market, yawned at it. Um, people all of a sudden- <laughs> By the way, say, uh, Logan is making a yawning, you know, he's doing that with his uh, hands. And <laughs> then he's saying, he's saying it because we are on a podcast, but it does get- uh, Yes, yes, yes. So- uh and a lot, a lot of people said deficits are rising. The supply, you know, ten-year yield six, seven percent. You know, Bank of Japan. All these things, all these things are true. And bond market ripped a sixty basis point rally on them, right? So a lot of people are saying, okay, so all these factors, you'll never see the bond market rally within just a f- not a few weeks. We saw an aggressive rally, uh, and I, w- I just, I would, I would say it in this: until this is broken. Go with the historical context. If the market believes the Fed is done and the Fed is done, traditionally speaking, the bond market rallies and mortgage rates go lower. What occurred recently is that when the Fed went hawkish, bond traders just rolled right over them. Because I mean, if, if I was a bond trader, I would have done the same thing. We are at a key technical level at 4.34%. The Fed went hawkish. You sell, you know, you short the bond market, you rally, you just rolled right over. So in this light, it was we were really restrictive policy with a ten year yield at five percent. So I think that was uh, that's where some of the Fed presidents were. Like, I don't understand why the bond market is going up. You went hawkish. You don't even know it. You don't even know your own face when you wake up in the morning. Come on. So here, the market is again thinking the Fed is done. Okay, now we focus on economic data. Now we don't have the drama events like we did earlier. We don't have a banking crisis. We don't have London losing. We don't have those things. So we have to focus on the data rather than market events. And now we have a lot of other people that might have been 
saying the 10-year yield is going to go higher. We have a lot of market players now saying, okay, now we're going to see the recession. Now the economic data, there's no more inflation growing. Here we go. So we have a lot of market players that have changed their tune as well, and the bond markets rallied. So I think I think let's just focus on the economic data as at this point, uh, and because the growth rate of inflation has been falling for some time. And uh, you know, again, we have stressed this for well over a year now, Sarah. You don't need a job loss recession to bring the growth rate of inflation down. And now that we're sitting here, not that far from Thanksgiving, the unemployment rate is still very low. And we've had a noticeable year-over-year decline on CPI, on PCE, on PPI inflation. Everything has noticeable decline because it was a global pandemic. In the history of global pandemics, they're very inflationary. Like what causes inflation in America, you know, going back 100 years? War does, right? World War One, World War Two. We had the 1970s, oil shock, labor force growth, all that stuff. But in the 21st century, we barely could get inflation above 2%. But global pandemics are different. So you have to treat it differently. So we just want Jerome Powell to land the plane. If he doesn't want to do it, I'll do it. Give it to me. Give it to me. Get all the Fed members, please. I'll get all the Fed members right now in a live debate. Let me land the plane. Let me let me take the pain and suffering of your job away because you talked about cloudy skies. We're navigating the scars. That's cloudy skies. We don't know what we do. Yeah, we know what we're doing. Let us do it. Let's go retire, man. Go fishing. Go golfing. Take Waller with you. You know, take Waller and Logan with you. President Logan, take 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 Neil Kashkari, even though he's young. He'll probably like fishing and golfing and reading Civil War books. So let us do it. We want to land the plane. We, we want to be a dual mandate fed. We don't want this to be, you know, let's put our head down, 1970s models. That's it. And we talk about this all the time because they tell us this, 1970s inflation, 1970s inflation, 1970s. So I think part of the problem, just, just internally speaking, is that the Fred is worried that, you know, if they talk dovish and then the markets rally, bond yields go down. Sarah Wheeler, people have sex and they buy homes and they have kids and all this stuff happens and American lives their lives. like. And then they're just like, no, we want to be the Grinch still. So it's a tug of war, but we're at a different stage. So I think realistically, we have to look at the data even more now because if, the, if we follow the growth rate of inflation, the 10-year yield, everything should have been much lower, but it isn't. So data first, labor labor market first, Right, the retail sales came in better than expectations. You know, uh, positive revisions. We'll just go with that, and then we'll we'll take it in there. And I think now that we are almost done with 2023, hopefully all this discussion that we've had going back to November 9th of last year, trying to teach people how to read forward-looking data, trying to make sure that the economic discussion has to be primary first to talk about housing. And we could go forward with this, and we'll be the ones to teach you how to do this. Our credibility is good, right? COVID-19 recovery model here, April 7th, 2020. Forbearance crash bros, ain't going to be a thing here, right? Housing savagely unhealthy. The 10-year-old breaks above 1.94%. The market is different. So we'll take you there, but we got to follow, follow the data and let, let that tells us where we're going. Listen, let's not forget the Airbnb crash, which I keep saying. Oh, I God, wish sure. some of those houses would come online because we could use them, but no. Um, okay, well, talking about forward-looking data, uh, purchase apps, what do we see there? Well, for the first time since early September, we've had back-to-back positive prints. Um, The year-over-year decline is the lowest so far this year. And I stress, as I have for some time, 
The year-over-year data needs context because last year at this time, we were collapsing in the fastest fashion ever. So I think we go back to November 9th again. Obviously, November 9th, 2022 is such a critical date because back then we just broke under 5 million existing home sales. But on November 9th, we wrote about, you know, if I look at the forward-looking data, it really does look like we're going to get to 4 million existing home sales. That is a unbelievable crash from where we were on that day, you know, for the last report. I said, yeah, it looks like it looks like that bad. I mean, that that's historic. Here, we we just have the lowest bar ever. So if mortgage rates keep on going down with duration and the application data gets better, then we have a 2024 market somewhat similar to what we have in 2023. So if a job loss recession does happen, if jobless claims break and everything, we will handle that once we get there. But as of right now, let's see how this goes. Because last year, mortgage rates from 7.37 to 5.99, it's not the case now. Right. So, uh, and we, again, we still have very restrictive policy, but, uh, I would, I would say this, uh, after the CPI inflation report, uh, Nick Timoros of the wall street journal, which is the leaker of fed basically kind of said, yeah, that might be the nail in the coffin, you know, because it, it, it the fed understands it has limits to what they can do right on this. So usually his, his, his job is to leak to the markets a kind of what the fed is thinking, uh, uh, and again, nobody makes their decision off of one inflation report. I mean, it has to be a trend. This is why we take trend data is more important. And the trend for inflation is noticeably down the growth rate, right? Inflation is always growing, but the growth rate. So, uh, um, purchase application data, if it rises, if we have some positive year over year prints later in the year, just remember the bar is so low. All of us can trip over it, right? Even if we're looking for it. Uh, so context is key. With the housing data, it's very, very, it's a very low bar for everything. Home sales, year-over-year uh, year price data, all this stuff is because last the second half of 2022 was crazy. It was unbelievably crazy, and we always say if you really want a tutorial on how to read forward-looking data, even in the craziest part and everything, why home prices aren't crashing. That podcast is our favorite and most popular one. It's a tutorial on what the most craziest 12 months in housing history ever was. But we can track it even in the wild times by looking at forward-looking data. Believe in the facts of reading. Reading is a good thing. The history of human civilization says reading is a good thing. So we go it from there. Reading is a good thing. Okay, so uh, we've talked about inflation data. We've talked about purchase apps. Uh, you talked a little bit about retail sales. What other things were we're recording this on Wednesday? What else are you looking for? Inventory, right? Um, the seasonality of inventory, of course, I'd look, it really does look like I'm batting, going to bat a zero. Um, and I think one of the things that I've tried, and it's funny because I have a lot of academic people now trying to like, you know, pick my brain on what's going on. I think the story of 2023, I don't think I believe, um, that mortgage rates got to 8% in the second half of 2023 and home prices were at all-time highs. And even with all that, the price cut percentages were 4% below. Okay? Th- that, to me, is the main story of 2023. Nobody really talks about it in that way, but the second half of pricing is always weak. It's getting it's weaker than what we saw normally in the previous decade because affordability is an issue and because mortgage rates are uh, got near 8%. But it's a more stable market. And the reason I try to explain this is that home sales aren't crashing like they were. I think the the 2022 story was we had the biggest home sale. It happened so fast. Like people didn't realize what happened. When we did this at the peak of 2005, 
it took three years to get to the lows of 2008. And, you know, we already had an inventory spike. We had almost three times as much inventory. So I think the one way to explain this, uh, a simple way, is that the spike in inventory, take the NAR data, from 2.5 million to 4 million, 1.5 million, 1.5 million active listings growth. That growth alone itself is higher than all the homes we have listings today. But we're at one point, yeah, we're at one, we're at 1.1 million, roughly. So that's also- that growth rate. Yeah, was that when? was from 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 two thousand five to two thousand seven. We had one point five million inventory increase, starting at two and a half million. Two and a half million active listings in two uh, thousand five. We went from two and a half million to four million. That one point five million is more than the total active listings today. So, if you have a stable market, the dynamic shift. This is why I. This is why I try to get people to think about supply and demand equilibrium in housing. Because if you don't look at all the aggregate data together, it could be confusing. Like I've literally had some of the smartest people I know, like, I don't get it. Like, how is this happening? And I, I said, I understand. But 2022 was shockingly abnormal because we literally had like a three-year sales crash happen in 12 months, right? We almost had like a mini housing cycle in 2022 where we go into the recession and all of a sudden, then the builder's like, oh, hey, guess what? We're about to sell some homes so we could do single family permit growth again. So it is the most confusing housing period ever in history. Like the, the housing bubble crash was very easy. It, everything was going down and there was nothing and supply was going and credit was deteriorating, everything. That's that's a simple data line. The COVID-19 recovery was simple, right? Where everyone went back to living their lives. People were buying homes. Here, you had a whole lot of mess right now. So inventory only grew at 59 homes on a, on a week-to-week basis. Seasonality is kicking in. This happens every single year. Um, and then we have to get ready for the 2024 spring season. Uh, mortgage rates have gone down a little bit. So can they close up uh, uh, some of the homes faster? Yes. But w- but we take it one week at a time. This is why Altos Research, Housing Wire, Mike Simon, and, Mike Simon and myself are now a team. It's not fair, right? You know, and Mike does all the inventory data better than anybody else. He's got all the forward track. And I try to incorporate the economic models, the economic cycle into housing. So put us both together. And I think I, I, I could give all of you a great story right now on why I've wanted Mike Simonson so much on my team. Um, Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, everything back then. Let's think about this. People go, well, how do we know what we were thinking back then? Well, Mike Simonson started Altus Research in 2006. He went to Lehman Brothers and said, hey, listen, I have this data line, this model, and to me, it looks like housing's breaking. Lehman Brothers, uh, I got 85 analysts. I, I don't need, we don't need this stuff. We have tracking. It's like, okay, fine. Lehman Brothers went out. This is 2007. Mike goes to Goldman Sachs, gives the same information to Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs takes the information, shorts the housing market, made money. There you go, right? And this is the purity of economic models and data. Right, that even in crazy times, there are some facts that cannot be broken. This is why we tr- we try to teach people that forward-looking data. You don't want to be old and slow. By the time you get the sales report, it's already. And we want to look ahead, and this is why the COVID nineteen recovery model was written on April seventh, twenty twenty. This is why we stress November 9th last year. Oh boy, it looks like the dynamics are sh- changing. We can show this, and when it changes, you'll be the first to know. Because we get it. We get it Friday night, right? 
don't wait two, three months for the sales report to come in and like, and like, then we, we said this earlier this year, it, people are going to be shocked <laughs> by June and July. They're going to think, what happened? Home sales were crashing. We listened to a bunch of people on YouTube and a bunch of people on Twitter and shocking love. They got it wrong again because they don't have the data. We have the access to data. We want to teach you people because teaching, I've always said this. If you teach people how to read, you teach people how to fish, you know, they're okay. You can let them go. They'll be okay. They'll have the knowledge. And specifically with you, it's teaching people how to interpret the data, right? Or or what those charts look like. I love it. Uh, anytime that uh, you do an event, you're like, isn't that a beautiful chart? And you're also, you always tell people, you know, the next time someone uh, asks you this, break out this chart. And I was like, you know, not everybody has a chart just at the ready to but be like, you, let me, let me, show let you me tell chart. you, if you guys want to show my live presentations, I, you know, you know, one thing I figured out, my my housing economic friends are boring because every time we leave a show, we we're like we always get invited back and we always have three or four other people invite us to other events. And one thing is like, yeah, you're, the other people are just, yeah, they're not the same, right? Forget about the hair. Forget about anything else. We do things different. We want people to engage. So the presentation is designed to engage and the charts are really simple, right? My job is to teach. And then you guys, all of you become like a knowledgeable army of people who read. And then you guys show the charts and go, yeah, this doesn't look like this. This doesn't look like that. And that's the purity of data, facts, math, reading, numbers, right? Numbers are the closest thing to the handwriting of God. So I do love how you um, have, you show the charts that really they they do explain themselves. Like when you look at it, the inventory chart, for instance, is that that one just kills me. It's sad. I mean, it's sad because we have so little inventory, but it absolutely flies in the face of anybody who says, you know, we're about to have a housing crash. So Sarah, that's why I draw that black line. And I sit there for, I don't know how many years. We just show it this way. And then people go 2008. And I go, okay, if it's 2008, we'll see it first. Why? Because we'll see it in the new listings data. And this is this is the this is the crazy part is that new listings data was trending at the lowest levels ever for the last three years, and somehow, somehow something was going to happen to where a home magically appears by itself without a listing, right? This is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people that believe a home will magically come online and not be part of the data line. It's it's an amazing, it's a fanatical approach to things, but it didn't work. And we we will get you there. Listen, if the data changes, I go with it. I go with the numbers because I believe numbers are the closest thing. I don't believe ideological is 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 better. Numbers and facts and data. So um, it's it's crazy. I understand twenty twenty three is confusing the hell out of everybody, and, and not just normal people. Some of the smartest people I know are just like, "What the hell is going on?" And I think the way we present our data. Mike presents it his way. I present mine's, and you you put them together. You could kind of think, you could kind of get understanding of what's going on. And I I've always stressed this: the biggest difference now than last year's. Last year we had the biggest waterfall collapse in demand. This year, right, we bounced from that four million. This is why I've always talked about that four million level for many many years. It's really hard for us to break underneath here, right? And considering we have over 157 million people, wow, that's even a more crazy data line now. We bounced off of that. We're slowly moving underneath there and we're just hanging right here. This right here changed the dynamics of the housing conversation. Now, of course, if you'd never realized that it's really rare to break under 4 million after 1996, you you would think you could go to a million. You could think we have three more million sales, but we just haven't been able to do that. I'm not saying that it can't happen, 
I'm just saying that it's very, very rare because there's a certain core group of buyers that we've always had in America after 1996, no matter where rates are 8% or 3%, they're always there. So we haven't broken that yet. And if you look at home prices versus per capita income, my God, we are so cheap compared to other countries, right? So it's not like we were elevated like Canada or Norway or New Zealand or any of those things. So different dynamics and let the data, let us help you, right? We'll, we'll guide you there. If the market's about to crash or anything, God, we get that data right away. I love it. Logan, thanks for walking us through. Uh, I will talk to you again in a couple of days, but as always, a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure always, Sarah. And to Julie, I hope you're smiling right now. And uh, thank you so much for the wonderful uh, time in Denver. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.